You know, somebody, somebody had the nerve to tell me that the puck drop is at 1215. <laughs> yeah, where I grew up, there wasn't any ice, so there wasn't any hockey. Hockey was what Canadians played, but it is a big thing now. And if you listen fast, we'll get out of here on time. Now, I am not preaching the sermon outlined in the bulletin. That will come next week. I actually had a little free time yesterday, and I thought a little more needed to be said about Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 8. And so I'm going to call this part 2 of falling away and talk today about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Um, I'm going to danger Will Robinson. I'm going to use some technical theological terminology today. And it won't kill you. It'll help you. And I'm going to try to explain every term I use. So hopefully it will be understandable. But I think more needs to be said uh, than what was said last week about this text. This sermon will be less exegetical and more theological, drawing theological implications from the text of Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 through 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and in the end is to be burned. Follow also with verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the word that you have given us. And we thank you that we don't read it independently of you. We read it as we are aided by the Holy Spirit, we interpret it as he gives us the sense. And we pray today that as we think about this text again, we might be encouraged and built up. Some of us need to be reproved and rebuked. Some of us need to be corrected in our theology. We do pray today that you would help us understand the teaching of your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I read an article by Sinclair Ferguson this week who happens to be one of my favorite preachers and theologians. He has a wonderful Scottish accent, which makes everything he says seem so much more profound. 
But not only that, he sounds like Sean Connery. I was listening to one of his sermons one day, driving a distant trip, and my wife, as she usually does when I listen to a sermon, nods off. And she was a little bit into a sleep, and all of a sudden she woke up and looked at me across the car and said, when did Sean Connery become a Christian? <laughs> but Sinclair Ferguson asked this question in an article he wrote for Table Talk. What is the greatest of all Protestant heresies? So let's assume you're taking a church history exam, Kevin. And Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, from 1542 to 1621, was a figure not to be taken lightly. He was Pope Clement's VIII's personal theologian, and one of the most affable figures in the counter-reformation movement within 16th century Roman Catholicism. On one occasion he wrote, the greatest of all Protestant heresies is, you fill in the blank, what would you fill in? You do know the answer? Oh, did we? Well, what's the answer? <laughs> meant a lot to you, didn't it? All right. Well, that's what we were. What is the greatest of all Protestant heresies? Is it justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? Or is it sola scriptura, the scripture alone? Or one of the other Reformation slogans or solas? The answer makes logical sense, but none of them complete Bellarmine's sentence. What he wrote, was the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. Assurance of salvation. And a moment's reflection explains why. If justification is not by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, and if faith needs to be completed by works, if Christ's work is somehow repeated, if grace is not free and sovereign, then something always needs to be done. Something always needs to be added for final justification to be ours. And that is exactly the problem. If final justification is dependent upon something we have to complete, it is never possible in this life to enjoy assurance of salvation. For then, theologically, final justification is contingent and uncertain and impossible for anyone apart from special revelation that Rome conceded to be sure of your salvation. But if Christ has done everything, if justification is by grace alone without any works of ours added, if it is received by faith's empty hands, then assurance, even full assurance, is possible for believers. No wonder Bellarmine thought full, free, and unfettered grace was dangerous. No wonder the Reformers loved the letter to the Hebrews. Christ has been the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. The noted Cardinal Bellarmine retorted after hearing Reformers' teaching on Hebrews and especially that regarding assurance, he said, if you teach this and those who believe it, they will live in license and antinomianism. But listen instead to the logic of Hebrews, which we will see as we go further in this text next week. 
Assurance doesn't lead to loose living and license and libertine and against the law kind of lawless living. Assurance ensures that a person is fruitful, that a person will be sanctified based upon God's work. Now, the question that is posed by this text before us today is can a regenerate Christian fall away from the faith? Let me make this very clear. Can a person who has experienced the operation upon the soul by the Holy Spirit of God, who has brought him a spiritual or her a spiritual resurrection, renewed the will so that the will will choose, the will is no longer dead in sin, but made alive by grace, and the will reaches out and embraces Christ, that person who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you are, your body is his temple, he lives in you. That person who has savingly believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that person who believes in, in salvation by grace alone, can that person fall away and be beyond restoration by repentance? That is the question. Can they? And we want to take a, a little further uh, journey into these kind of thoughts. Now understand something. When people pick up the Bible and read it, you never come to the Bible with a clean slate. You never come to, to the Bible with pure objectivity. It is impossible. One thing that postmodernism has done to modernism is totally destroyed the idea of pure objectivity. For example, if scientists do research and they use the scientific method which is a child of modernism and they come to results they run experiments they test experiments they look at the results and then they do what they interpret the results how do they interpret the results well they would say objectively but no they don't they interpret the results within the confines of the reigning paradigm of their time for example, what's the reigning paradigm in the scientific community regarding creation? It is evolution, is it not? And so when tests are run, they read the data and the results of the testing through the lenses of evolutionary science. And that's the conclusions they come to. So a person comes to the Bible and he reads a passage like Hebrews 6, or she reads a passage like Hebrews 6, and then they begin to interpret this passage. And they look at this passage in one of two ways. Nobody looks at it objectively. You're either going to look at this passage in what is called a God-centered way, or you're going to look at this passage in a man-centered way. So there's something called God-centeredness and something called man-centeredness. One is theopocentrism and the other is anthropocentrism. And so the question then becomes, Whose presuppositions are the most biblical? Are the ones who advocate the free will of man and the true, or they emphasize that a person can fall away because salvation is really contingent upon their choice and that they must keep themselves saved by persevering, are going to read this passage and see, ha ha, I knew it, assurance is not possible. And those who hold, in my judgment, more biblical presuppositions are going to read this passage and ask themselves the question, is this what this is really talking about? And then they will look at the passage and try to interpret it in light of the context. 
Now, all of these terms describing these people that the writer is addressing look to the naked eye like they could be describing an experience of some kind with the Lord. That they could be uh, actually talking about uh, people falling away who used to believe. There are those who teach that Hebrews chapter 6 is a clear statement that a Christian can fall away from the faith and thereby lose their salvation. The purpose of this message today is to reflect on that and show it to be an erroneous interpretation. But also that the persons making such assertions are in danger of making the very error which the passage is warning about. Perhaps this passage is one of the most terrifying in all of Scripture, and it's usually the case when a passage is read in isolation without regard to the surrounding context, then theological error has more opportunity to creep in. We all know that Hebrews was written to underline three times the superiority and the supremacy of Jesus Christ uh, to all other means of pleasing God, such as uh, temple sacrifice, and the law. In fact, Christ is seen as replacing all of them. Jesus Christ is shown to be more excellent than the prophets, than the angels, than Moses, than Joshua, than the Levitical priesthood, and his sacrifice, and even Abraham. The new covenant is shown to be better because it fulfills everything the old covenant pointed to. Jesus himself is revealed as the climax of the covenant of grace. The author of Hebrews says Christ Jesus himself is revealed as the climax of the covenant of grace. Christ has obtained a ministry that is more excellent than old covenant because it mediates a better, uh, it mediates, is better since it is enacted on better promises. And so the idea here in this passage is that Christ is superior and this passage warns the Hebrews against falling away. Falling away is, is, is the one thing uh, that is being warned against here that is abandoning trust in Christ alone by going back to now the worst, worthless and obsolete things such as trusting in the temple sacrifice and obedience to the law in order to be justified. The warnings are given to those in the faith community that they would not be tempted to turn from trusting Jesus alone, who is God over all, to some lesser, meaningless, obsolete ritual act that supposedly now can curry some kind of favor with God. Trusting in anything except Christ alone, who is the light and scatters all the shadows, is said to be tantamount to trampling underfoot the Son of God and believing that his once and for all sacrifice is insufficient in itself to save. If something in place of or in addition to Jesus is trusted, in it is no different than a denial of him. So in context, the person who goes back by trading in Christ for the now empty ritual of the temple, that itself was meant to point to the fulfillment in Christ, are then re-crucifying the Son of God for their shame. 
And Hebrews 6, 4 through 8 is often read in isolation apart from this context. Tragically, the very next text is often left off by those who claim that regenerate Christians can fall away. A text which qualifies the preceding text. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 6 verse 9 says this, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. Now notice the word beloved is ascribed to the listeners. We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. If the author of Hebrews is confident of better things, of the persons he is speaking with, things that belong to salvation, then obviously falling away does not belong to that. This is a clear statement that the author was not describing saving faith of those who are in danger of falling away in the preceding passage. Because the kind of response that falls away, he says, are not among the things that belong to salvation. So whatever the things the author has just described about falling away in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, they are not characteristics of true regenerate people. People can be enlightened, they can taste, and they may partake. They may be externally a part of the church and receive external blessings. Yet, if they abandon trust in Christ for ritual or anything else, there is no hope for their salvation. They were never regenerate to begin with, for falling away does not accompany or belong to true salvation according to the text. Remember in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, the writer confirms this idea. He says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. In other words, there... Uh, there are people who are within the covenant community who have failed to enter rest because they are not united to Christ by faith. They were trusting in something else. These warnings are directed at their complete misunderstanding of the good news. Now, I uh, wanted to say something today about the distinction here that I am assuming between the visible and invisible church. In Romans chapter 2, verses 28 to 29, Paul confirmed that there were two groups of people within the nation of Israel. He spoke of the one who is a Jew outwardly, that is visibly, and one who is a Jew inwardly, that is invisibly. And he concluded, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is the circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Paul distinguished between the visible and the invisible people of God in the Old Testament. The visible nation of Israel experienced many temporary blessings from God, but Abraham's eternal inheritance was granted only to the invisible people of God, those who had faith in Abraham. The Westminster Larger Catechism extends Paul's distinction between visible and invisible Israel to the New Testament age by speaking of the invisible and visible church. The invisible church consists of the whole number of the elect, 
that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head. The visible church, by contrast, is much larger, including all those who are outwardly a part of the church of Christ. It is made up of all such in all ages and places in the world who do profess the true religion and their children. And so what the writer of Hebrews is discovering here or is sharing with us is not everybody who claims to be of the invisible church is. There are people who are merely externally connected to the church but have not experienced justification by grace alone through faith alone and the regeneration that occurs by God's Spirit to make them new creatures in Christ Jesus. Ironically, those who teach that this passage speaks of the ability of regenerate Christians to fall away are actually committing the very error that the passage warns against. And you may say, how so, Pastor Tim? And I will tell you, the very assertion that a Christian can lose their salvation is tantamount to saying that what Christ has accomplished on the cross is insufficient to save completely. And so you need to, at least partly, trust in yourself to maintain your own righteous standing before God and that this is not unlike Catholic theology, which teaches to say Christ can lose us is the same that believing what Christ did is not enough for us us. The reason it's so heinous, it is as casting aspersions upon the sufficiency of the work of Christ. To say that Christ can lose us is the same as believing that what Christ did is not enough for us, that we must maintain our own justification. And this kind of belief as a man-centered theology is a form of legalistic self-justification to believers that are to people who believe that you can either attain or maintain your own righteousness before God. And it's a denial of Christ, the very error that the Hebrews were tempted to make. And the author is speaking of it. In fact, it's sort of a backdoor to the Galatian heresy where Paul says, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? To believe that one can lose your salvation, therefore, is trusting in something other than Jesus Christ to keep you righteous. Uh, hopefully you're understanding this. The Hebrews, because of persecution, because of difficulty, because life wasn't working out for them, were tempted to go back to temple sacrifice, trusting in something other than Christ. And the doctrine that one can lose one's salvation is likewise trusting in one's moral ability to maintain a just standing before God since Jesus, according to them, is unable to save completely those whom he came to save. Even though the author of Hebrews declares that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, and by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Either we are trusting in Christ alone to both attain and maintain our just standing before God, or we're trusting in something worthless, which the author of Hebrews gives severe warnings about. Quite ironic. The passage is a warning passage for the very error that those who teach we can lose our salvation. They are making that argument. 
in the passage, turning back to Judaism is a deliberate and final forsaking of Christ and the guilt of his blood. They had been enlightened by the word. They had tasted the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. They had shared as companions in the Holy Spirit. They had shared the benefits of his supernatural work and manifestations. Perhaps you may recall a passage in the Gospels where Jesus describes something very similar about those who approach him on Judgment Day. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These persons shared in the outward benefits of the visible church. That's what they shared in. But they trusted in something other than Jesus to attain both status and maintain their salvation. I never knew you spoken to those who did miracles clearly indicates that while such people shared outwardly in the covenant benefits, they themselves were, in need, were never at any time genuinely saved. Jesus did not say, I knew you at one time and now I don't know you any longer. He did not say that. He never means never. Again, the belief that a regenerate Christian can fall away like some Hebrews were tempted to do is dangerously close to believing that Christ in himself is not sufficient to maintain our standing before God. We must do something in addition to what Jesus did to remain justified. Those who believe such things need to take heed to the warning and trust in Christ and him alone. Not self, who is both the author, Jesus, is the author and perfecter of our salvation. Now, we're going to get into some questions that I think arise in people's minds when you make that statement. But what I wanted to do was talk a little bit about some of the presuppositions of people who believe it is possible for genuinely regenerate people to lose their salvation. Now, what is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints? This doctrine refers to the biblical teaching which says that those whom God loved before the foundation of the world and the ones he chose in Christ who are regenerated by the Holy Spirit and truly believe in Jesus Christ as he is presented in this scripture will be preserved by God their entire lives until death and therefore cannot lose their salvation. They are eternally saved. This does not mean it does not mean that true believers cannot backslide, cannot commit gross sins. They sometimes do, but they cannot totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace. It is certain that true believers may fall into very great sins, but yet they shall be recovered and brought again to repentance. Since the word perseverance has been misunderstood, it should be noted that believers persevere only because God preserves us. Now let me tell you something. If God did not preserve me, if he did not have his sovereign, gracious hand upon my life, I would fall away faster than you could blink. I would. Left to myself, there is no hope. No hope whatsoever in myself to maintain my righteousness before the Lord. Because I don't have any. I only have the righteousness of Christ. But even to not fall away 
turn apostate, turn my back on God, denounce Jesus Christ, and walk away. God preserves us. In other words, people are not ultimately saved, or people are ultimately saved, not because of their own efforts at perseverance, but they persevere because of God's grace. God maintains a believer's faith and orthodoxy and repentance. The confession of faith emphasizes this point. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability or unchangeableness of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace from which all arises also the certainty and infallibility thereof. So what's he saying? The whole trinity... Father, Son, Holy Spirit are committed and invested in preserving you if you are a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. God's covenant love and His faithfulness and His sovereign power guarantees that none of His children will ever perish. But there is another viewpoint. And this, what I have just given you, is often referred to as the Reformed or Calvinistic view. Uh, if you be believe in TULIP, it's the fifth point, which is called the perseverance of the saints. Now I'm going to give you the Arminian point of view on this same topic. And remember, Arminian's flower is not a tulip, but a daisy. And they stand around going, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, yeah. The Arminian view, the doctrine of the perseverance of saints, logically flows from the doctrine of unconditional election, irresistible grace, total depravity, and limited atonement. If God is sovereign, as the Bible teaches, and Calvinists assert, then God can and will preserve those whom he has set his infinite and eternal love upon. Armenians, named after Jacob Arminius, they are not Armenians ethically, or ethnically, they are Arminians named after uh, a actually Dutch professor by the name of Jacobus or Jacob Arminius. And here's what he taught. He rejected all of the doctrines that Reformed people believe because his whole theological system rotates around the axis of the alleged free will of man. I mean, people will, will fight to their last breath, especially in churches, for the free will of man. God is said to elect only those who are foreseen to voluntarily accept Christ. Christ is said to have died for all men without exception. They assert that his death is not actually secured or guaranteed the salvation of any one person, but has only made it possible to all. Furthermore, they teach that the gracious operations of the Holy Spirit operate equally upon all and that the reason why one person is born again and another is not is simply that one person cooperated while the Holy Spirit while the other successfully resisted him. The Armenian makes the Father's choice of the elect the redemptive work of the Son and the application of Christ's work by the Holy Spirit contingent upon and limited by the free will and voluntary reception of grace. 
Since man and not God is the one who sovereignly decides who will and will not be saved, it logically follows that man's free will will also determine who perseveres and who rejects the faith. The Protestant Arminians also hold that it's not only possible, but also a frequent fact that persons truly regenerate by neglect neglecting grace, grieving the Holy Spirit with sin, fall away totally, and at least finally from grace into eternal reprobation. The Arminian places the cause of perseverance not in the hands of an all-powerful, never-changing God, but in the hands of weak and sinful man. Now, I could go to great lengths with scriptural proofs here, to totally undo all of their objections to the doctrine. But there are a few serious problems regarding the Arminian system that should be noted. And this is what I want to... Now, these are people who look at Hebrews 6 through Arminian presupposition glasses. Here's what they're saying. First, the Arminian scheme places man's trust and hope for perseverance and salvation more upon man than upon Jesus Christ. Man's trope, trust, and hope for perseverance and salvation more upon man than upon Jesus Christ. Man ultimately must look to himself for salvation. Christ did his part, but if man does not keep his own will in line and keep his repentance up, he will be lost. The Armenian thus reasons to boast before God, I persevered, but others did not. I made the right choices. I exercised my will righteously, but others did not. In such a system, God must at best share a little glory with sinful man. Consistent Arminianism, Arminianism is nothing less than a rejection of salvation by grace alone. Second, if God is not the one who preserves his saints because such a preservation would violate man's free will, then how are saints in heaven preserved? Does that mean that I can go to heaven and one day decide... I want to fall, and I can fall and be booted out. If, that's, if you're an Arminian, you have to admit that possibility. The Arminian must admit that either God has the power to change a person's nature and will in heaven to make man incapable of sinning, or that a second fall of rebellion against man, uh, of man against God is possible in the eternal state. If God is capable of controlling man's will in heaven and preserving the redeemed for eternity, why is he incapable or unwilling to preserve his dear children for their short habitation on the earth? How is the Arminian supposed to have peace and not worry when his eternal destiny is dependent upon his own weak and sinful will? Given the fact that doctrinal and ethical apostasy are quite common in our times, one would think that a self-conscious Arminian would either be wallowing in the pride of self-confidence or an absolute nervous wreck. To, such a doctor, uh, to me, such a doctrine has terrors which would cause me to shrink away from it forever and which would fill me with constant and unspeakable perplexities. To feel that I were crossing this troubled and dangerous sea of life, dependent for my final security upon the actings of my own treacherous nature, are enough to fill me with constant alarm. But take dear comfort, my dear Christians. Arminianism is not biblical in any way. It is very 
man-centered and man-exalting. And any time something centers on man and exalts man, it plays down the glory of God, steals and robs his own glory. Now, let me ask this question. Since it says that these people were partakers of the Holy Spirit, doesn't that go against the doctrine of efficacious grace or what's called irresistible grace? Is it possible for the Spirit to work on people and they not be regenerate or saved? And the answer is this. The doctrine of efficacious grace does not mean, nor is it ever meant, that every influence of the Holy Spirit cannot be resisted. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, Stephen says to the Jewish leaders, You stiff-necked people and uncircumcised of heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. And Paul, in his letters, speaks of grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit in both Ephesians and 1 Thessalonians. It means rather that the Holy Spirit can and does overcome all resistance and make his influence irresistible according to the sovereign pleasure of God at his time and his choosing. The Spirit does not exercise efficacious grace. Efficacious means it desires, it accomplishes what you desire to start out with. And so uh, the, the uh, Holy Spirit does not exercise efficacious grace every time the gospel is preached to every person he does not do it when God undertakes to fulfill his purposes to save those he's covenanted with the son to save the ones he gave to his son therefore no one can successfully resist him notice the passage in Acts also says that those who resist the spirit are uncircumcised in heart and ears a phrase used for the unregenerate and yet in this passage the spirit and his work is being resisted the gospel is being preached the spirit is at work but men are resisting why because the passage says their hearts are uncircumcised they are natural man who cannot think spiritual thoughts Water does not rise above its source. They have ears, but they first must be circumcised by the Spirit, or they will continue to be hostile to the gospel, for that is what they are by nature. Not being willing to repent is the same as resisting the Holy Spirit. So if God gives repentance, which Second Timothy says he does, it is the same as removing hostile resistance. That is why we call this work irresistible grace. So this should be sufficient evidence in itself that the Spirit does often work partly and not savingly toward individuals. This is also what Paul explained in Romans 9, verses 14 through 18, which caused a similar opponent to say, Why then does he still find fault for who can resist his will? To which Paul answers, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me thus? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for beauty and another for menial use? Efficacious grace or irresistible grace is the sovereign work of God to overcome the rebellion of our hearts and bring us to faith in Christ so that we can and will be saved. That is why no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they have first been born again. 
As for Hebrews 6, verse 9, the text clearly proves that whatever was described in the previous text about falling away was not equal to salvation. So this disqualifies these verses from meaning a person can fall away from salvation. If the perseverance of the saints is true, then why does the writer of Hebrews need to give Christian warnings? And the answer is because the Holy Spirit always uses means to accomplish His purposes. Just as the Holy Spirit does not usually save people in a void, but through the preaching of the gospel, so likewise He sustains and feeds the saints through the preaching of the word, prayer, fellowship, and the sacraments. The Word has only value to us if the Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts. And likewise, the Holy Spirit does not work in a void, but uses means just as seed needs water to grow. There may be extraordinary circumstances, let's say, where a Muslim is converted to Christianity in some remote region of China after hearing a radio broadcast, or a person who does not have a Bible preach and a preacher at hand in such circumstances, the Holy Spirit may sustain a true believer by pouring an extra portion of himself, but commonly the Spirit only feeds and sustains his people through the means of grace. God has called us to persevere and promises to preserve us. Now, let me conclude this message. I've got about ten more points. R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite theologians who's now with the Lord. R.C. wrote an article, Can a Christian Lose Their Salvation? And he said that we live in a culture that believes everyone be, will be saved, that we are justified by death, and all you need to do to go to heaven is die. But God's Word certainly doesn't give us the luxury of believing that. Any quick and honest reading of the New Testament shows that the apostles were convinced that nobody can go to heaven unless they believe in Christ alone for their salvation. But the question then becomes, Paul warns Timothy to keep the faith, to keep a good conscience, and to be reminded of those who didn't. The apostle refers to those who have made shipwreck of their faith, men whom he handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul's reference to excommunication of these men and the whole passage combines a sober warning with concrete examples of those who fall away grievously from their Christian profession. There is no question that professing believers can fall and fall radically. For example, last week we mentioned Peter who denied Christ. But the fact that he was restored shows that not every professing believer who falls has fallen past the point of no return. At this point, we should distinguish a serious and radical fall from a total and final fall. Reformed theologians have noted the Bible is full of examples of true believers who fall into gross sin and even protracted periods of impenitence and hardness. So Christians do fall, and they fall radically. What could be more serious than Peter denying Christ three times in public? But the question is, are these people who are guilty of a real fall irretrievably fallen and eternally lost, or is this fall a temporary condition that will, in the final analysis, be remedied by restoration? In the case of 
such as Peter, we see the fall was remedied by his repentance. With Judas, it was not. There are those who do fall away finally. Uh, 1 John speaks of false teachers who went out from the church as never having truly been part of the church. But I want to get down to R.C.'s conclusion, which is a very pastoral and helpful conclusion. If the person who has fallen is still a, is alive, how do we know if he is a full apostate? One thing none of us can do is read the heart of other people. When I see a person who's made a profession of faith and later repudiates it, I don't know whether he's truly a regenerate person who is in the midst of a serious and radical fall, but who will at some point in the future be restored. Or whether he is a person who was never really converted in the first place, whose profession of faith was spurious or false from the start. The question of whether a person can lose his salvation is not an abstract question. It touches us at the very core of our Christian lives, not only with our regard to our concerns for our own perseverance, but also with the regard to our concern for family and friends, and particularly those who seem for all outward appearances to have made a genuine profession of faith. We thought their profession was credible. We embraced them as brothers and sisters, only to find out they have repudiated their faith. What do you do practically in a situation like that? First, you pray. Then you wait. We don't know the final outcome of the situation. And I'm sure there are going to be surprises when we get to heaven. We're going to be surprised to see people who we didn't think would be there. And we're going to be surprised that we don't see people who we surely thought would be there. Simply put, we don't know the internal status of a human heart or a human soul. Only God can see the soul, change that soul, and preserve that soul. So keep praying for those who you see falling away. I hope God will use this word to help you understand Hebrews 6 better. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for this word. It is true and sharper than any two-edged sword and is a critic of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. We do pray for those who've turned their backs on you and walked away. We pray that you would have mercy on them and call them to your, yourselves and restore them uh, to uh, repentance and a relationship with them. And we thank you for the wonderful guarantees that we know and own that you will certainly preserve us and that the sign that you are preserving us is that we are persevering and that we are fruitful. And we pray this in Jesus' name and we also pray that as we receive this offering that we would give us those who are grateful for the unspeakable gift you have given us. And we pray in Jesus' name.